Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of First Bite. Just a friendly reminder that if you'd like to earn credit for this episode, complete the accompanying audio course registered for ASHA CEUs on speechtherapypd.com. And, you know, I love a good coupon. Don't forget to use the new coupon code BITE21 to get $20 off your registration fee. So check out speechtherapypd.com, register for an annual subscription, and don't forget to use Byte21 for your $20 off. So happy listening, happy growing, and y'all, from the bottom of our hearts with everybody behind First Bite, thank you so much for being part of this journey. Don't forget, check us out at First Bite Podcast on Instagram World and at First Bite on Facebook. Happy learning, y'all. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson. MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation. So there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant, who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels, and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I got to start off with a full disclosure. We're in the middle of a really, really, really bad thunderstorm, and the basement is the safety zone. So if at any point in time, two boys, two dogs, and a husband come running through, heads up, <laughs> this, you know, severe thunderstorms in the south. So hi. <laughs> How you doing, Aaron? It's... Sunny here, so it's sunny there. That's not cool, man. That's not cool, huh? Well, okay, so 
We have a lot to cover. We have all of the interview questions. And folks, we are very much live. So I can see a couple of you popping up on to participate. So if at any point in time you have a question, please feel free to type them out in the chat box or in the Q&A and we will get to them. So Erin, you want to open us off with a clinic win for the week? A win... I have a kiddo who is finally getting their AAC and I have five others that are on trial devices and I have another one probably coming. So that's exciting. Yeah. Do you have any wins? I got to get completely dressed up today to do therapy in a tea room. And I was very excited because we've been working on making sandwiches with the little girl for the better part of three months. And she will now eat bread and turkey, sometimes cheese and sometimes food lubricants like mayonnaise, mustards, ketchup, barbecue sauce, ranch. We've been creative. And today we carried that over to the tea room across the street. So I put on my favorite outfit and I came downstairs and I was all excited and goose informed me that I look like a fruit cup. Bear informed me he wanted to know why my shirt had dresses. And my husband informed me I kind of looked like Mrs. Frizzle, which I kind of feel like the Frizzle one for the win. But I was like, ah. but you know what? She ate her sandwiches. So like, and unanticipated, I did not think that the TRM would cut them in triangles and we've been eating them in rectangles. Mm. And even though they were in triangles, she still ate them. So that was... <sighs> Us three months worth of work and she got to have a tea party and that was joyful. So yay for the, yay for the wins. All right. So folks, we have a lot of ground to cover and this topic was specifically requested every once in a while on at first bite podcast on the Instagram account. We do Q and a, tell us what you want to hear. This topic has come up a couple of different times as well as has been heavily requested with some CFs. So that's kind of what led us to today. And we have our little outlined agenda. But one of the things that I see newer clinicians or individuals transitioning from one field, like maybe the schools or adults into the world of pediatrics and home health, I see them struggling with answering case study questions. Hi, Cola Kitty. <laughs> Cola came really to say hello. Excited. But uh, yes, so that's what we're going to start off with is specific case study questions that you should be prepared for. So Erin, lay it on us, lady. Can you think of a couple that you would ask a potential EI home health practitioner? Well, I think the biggest, and this is like you giving a case study example, but I think the biggest one is asking about one of your hardest patients and what you did to overcome some of those hardships within the session or, or with working with the patient, working with the family, whatever that was, that's one that I will always ask. So I always would have one prepared of, cause you know, they're going to want to see how a lot of these questions aren't to pick as much at your clinical skills because they're hopeful that your experience and looking at your resume will prove that you have some of those skills that they need. But the most important part of interviews are they're reading how you answer the questions. Like the way that you say things says a lot. 
And I found that it's not necessarily when I have, because I have been doing a lot more interviewing and building this in-home program. And so I really look at how the question is answered. So are you looking at it really positively? Are you answering this hard patient just talking about how hard it was and that you kind of gave up? So never feel bad about saying that a patient was hard or saying that something was difficult, as long as you're answering with a caveat and a positive and a spin or what you learned from it. And I will preface this by saying I've interviewed a lot. I've had a lot of interviews (laughs) before I started my CF, while I was in my CF and a lot of different places. So I've been asked a lot of questions and that one I almost always been asked. I've been in a lot of interviews. That's how, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So on my side of things, let me preface this with, I want to know that if you don't know the answer to my question, that you know how to find the source. So when I'm asking clinical case questions, whether it be on my side that I'm interviewing for a potential student to work with me as their clinical supervisor for a practicum site, whether that be I'm looking to hire and expand private practice growth, whatever it is, if I ask you a clinical question about a case study and you don't know the answer, don't attempt to fake it. It's okay, and I will respect the respondee more if they say, I don't know the answer to that question at this moment. However, I know where to go to to find the source of information, whether that be rarediseases.gov, whether that be, I don't know, feedingmatters.org for resources, whether that be, in case it's super technical about evidence-based practice for treatment methodology, you could go to ASHA's practice portal. Or if it's a, but I could ask a professor or I know an individual who's engaged in research in this topic matter. That to me tells me that in the moment when they're treating a patient, If they don't know it, they'll make a note to go back, do the research, and then come back to it, which that is absolutely key. Or that's something I would really love to learn more about. Like even just acknowledging, like I had an interview where they went through every single type of patient population that they work with and asked you to say how comfortable you felt with it. And they weren't asking for me to say I'm comfortable with every patient population. They wanted to know I had some experience with some, but they also wanted to know what they would need to train me on or what I wanted to learn more about. I had gone in and said, yeah, I've worked with a ton of burn victims and I didn't. That's really not a, that's unlikely if you haven't been in a hospital setting and B that's just a lie. So then you're going to get stuck in a situation you don't want to be in if you do get hired. Yes, yes, and yes, yes. Okay, so with respect to the clinical questions that I'm asking, one of the ones that I do go back to is talk to me about your training and your education. Mm -hmm. And that's key to me. I, I will tell you right now, given the research and the trainings that I have participated in, if I see non-evidence-based methodologies listed on a resume, then I will, one, I won't even pick them for an interview process. So you need to make sure that when you're resume building and you're listing the continuing education that you've participated in, that you're listing 
action items that are reflective of current evidence-based practice. I would caveat that with you need to then verify the sources of the information. Purdue iEats Lab with uh, Dr. Georgia Malandrecki, if you're huge into PFD, she lists the research coming out of her lab is, oh my gosh, I want to grow up and be her. <laughs> but like, it's amazing. So I would make sure that if you're listing this as a, hey, I've done this, that you are verifying it through the ASHA practice portal as being respective and that you're seeking to understand that it is well received in the research-based community, the courses that you have pursued. So well, and you don't have to put everything on your resume, if you have taken a course and then you've expanded on your knowledge and you've realized, ooh, maybe that course knowledge that I took isn't reflective of my clinical therapeutic techniques at this point in time, you can take it off. And a lot of other jobs and careers, you alter your resume significantly depending on the job that you're applying for. Whereas we live in a world where like, we don't have to do that as much, but I think you should consider it depending on the job that you're applying for and highlighting various things because it is a red flag interviewing someone if you see that they've taken all these courses that involve non-evidence-based practices. And mm -hmm. it might not be if you're interviewing at a place that uses those practices, but do you want to be there is the question. So making sure that you're you're thinking she is clawing on this chair and I am not happy because it's an expensive chair and I have my squirt bottle ready for her. I apologize. This cat is going to. Dude, we're live y'all. We're live. Okay. So I say that with, I don't know if you guys can attend this year or not, but Asha does. They are doing a virtual track for the Asha convention. Please, please, please participate in the pediatric feeding disorder track. This is their inaugural year. I was blessed to be part of the planning committee. And I can tell you that they are even going through and putting in presentations on a review of the current evidence-based practices. And specifically, they're having feeding matters on to talk about the brand new R code that's coming out in October. So I do preface that. I highly hope that you come. Okay, so please watch what you put on your resume. And I carry that over and embed that within the clinical questions. Because when I'm asking a clinical case study, I would pick out a particular population, broad, not necessarily super specific, but talk to me about your experience with patients that have a cardiac condition. Who would you engage with from an interprofessional practice partner? If I'm looking at um, and I'm asking a question about a patient with Down syndrome, I would probably say, all right, so talk to me about a time that you've worked with a little one with Down syndrome and who did you engage with in a professional practice partner, as well as I may talk to tie in like feeding tubes or laryngomalacia, trachomalacia. So it may not be incredibly specific However, I personally will intersperse medical terminology into my question to find out and test if the individual is comfortable with those common medical terms for pediatrics. And I am incredibly well aware that the prevailing medical aspects textbooks, that's a mouthful, prevailing medical aspects textbooks for speech pathologists may not necessarily be up to date on peds cases. But those larger terms should be familiar, even for a newer clinician. What are your mm -hmm. thoughts there? 
It depends because I came out of grad school with three pediatric feeding experiences. Some come out with zero and it very much depends on the program and it depends on what you are pursuing, Mm -hmm. but kind of going off of what you said about the evidence-based practice and feeling out those questions. I being someone that's newer in my career than Michelle can cop to the fact (laughs) no, but I had a, especially when you're a CF and we're talking more on feeding right now, this is all encompassing, but I think sometimes I can speak more to that experience. And I came in being like, I want an inpatient job. I want an inpatient job. I want to work in the NICU. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure it out. And I got the inpatient job, but there were a lot of red flags along the way Mm -hmm. that I pushed aside because I was like, this is my dream job. So when you are interviewing, you're also interviewing them. And even as a CF, it's important to know your worth because if you see all these red flags while you're interviewing with them, you're setting yourself up for not a good fit. If you're not being honest in your interview because you want to impress someone or because you really want to get this job and you get the job, you're going to be have misled them and likely misled yourself because you weren't the person that you were. I like to equate interviews to dating. I'm not good at dating, but I equate it in the same. It's a mutual experience. If there's that if there's that interview or that job that you really, really, really want, like that guy that's beautiful and from Australia, he might not be for you. And then there's the job that keeps creeping at your door, maybe texting you late at night. I can't believe I'm fully going into this metaphor, but it's, you know, it keeps popping up there, but it's trying too hard. And then you have to find the job that you mutually really like each other. So still pulling for the redheaded baseball player. Not that we're talking about real life here, but. (laughs) Bless her. But anyway, I can speak from experience that I saw red flags and I was in a situation where I wasn't treated the way that I should have been treated. So being honest is really important because whether you know it or not, they also know what they're looking for. And if you're honest and they, it's not you, there's a reason for it. So it's hard when you're gung-ho, I want to get this job. This is my dream. I'll do anything for it. You shouldn't have to do anything for a job. That's not going to be a good situation for you. That's just an experience side note, because when it felt right, it was right. When I ended up where I am now, it worked. It was easy. Just like they say, when you find the right person, I'll tell you later if it feels that way. But they tell you it's supposed to be... So when I found the right job, it was easy and it just made sense. And they wanted me as much as I wanted them. So I'm speaking a lot to CFs because I have a lot of friends too that are like, I desperately want to get this job. And so many times that they get it, it's not the job for them. So that's just a side note. One, when we go to do our interviews and we're presenting ourselves, don't forget that little piece in our code of ethics about presenting and representing yourself to the public. That also counts for an interview process. And on this side, I have had job changes due to tiny humans, right? And that brings with it other unique challenges and perspectives because, I mean, I've 
inpatient, outpatient nursing home. I did six weeks in a nursing home to know I was not destined to work with giant boogers. But when you're making a transition, especially if you're coming back from maternity leave, if you're coming back from having worked at home for an extended period of time or been out of the workforce, because I mean, let's face it, raising tiny humans is a full-time gig that you just don't get paid for. I like to think mm-hmm. that I have like basically four full-time jobs. Two of them are goose and bear. Yeah. Goose and bear. Oh man. They got their basketball stuck today. My husband was regaling me with um, stories of how they unstuck the basketball on the basketball court right before the thunderstorm blew. And I was like, why, why were we out there? But it's okay to show the passion for your children, your own personal children, when you're doing the job interview. Because when I'm interviewing someone and I know that they don't have a family and they don't speak to that piece and they're so gung-ho on it, it kind of makes me wonder about the work-life balance. And Mm. I personally love it when individuals share their own family members and how um, embed that into a clinical case study. Like if I'm asking a clinical case study question, I love it when they talk from firsthand experience because there are women and men out there that have had children that were preemies, that had feeding tubes, that had PFD, that had a cortical vision impairment that needed to use eye gates and bringing that firsthand experience into the clinical case study as a caregiver lets me know that you are going to be able to build a bridge, to quote the Leslie Wilfong, to build a bridge with the family members and your potential patients caregivers. And so I love that. Also, if you have been out of the workforce tending to your family and you're coming back, don't be afraid to say, I took time off. And I hear a lot of individuals saying, well, I feel rusty when I'm making that transition back. I mean, Heavens to Betsy's, I feel rusty sometimes when I'm on break between semesters and I have to get back in the swing of things, but you get back in the swing of things and hopefully you land that dream job and you will have an amazing team to help build you and fill your cup in that new setting. So that's kind of, yes. And if you are specifically interviewing for a facility that you know, is known for their AAC or is Mm -hmm. known for one particular thing, then I would beef up on current best practice in that specific area and be prepared for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's okay to ask them, this is what I would do. How would you assess that? How would you treat that? Who would you refer to? Mm -hmm. Because if, as Aaron says, if it's not the dream date for you, you might get some new tidbits of information for when you're walking out the door to participate in your next dream date interview. I don't, yeah, old married lady. I can't do the girlfriend, the analogy. (laughs) Well, and like you said, seeing what they are known for, hopefully you are interviewing there because you like what they have to offer and have that in your back pocket to say, I really liked this about what I read about y'all. They want to know that you care about them, that you're not just interviewing for a bunch of jobs and hoping something sticks. I would have those questions ready, those responses ready, specific things, not general to them. 
they want to know that even for companies that care about longevity, which is really hard in the field that we're in, Mm-hmm. Because it's advertised as you can do a sniff this year and then you can move to a school and then you can be in the hospital and which is great, but companies want people that want to stay or at least want to stay for a while. So showing that you really value them is important. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then ethical questions that get posed. I have just recently bore witness to a series of situations that, I mean, I was asked to be basically subject matter expert. People came, asked the question. And so I'm not privy to the firsthand experience to make any reporting, but I served as the subject matter expert on things. And a couple of them have to do with billing and coding and racism and homophobia. It's been an interesting couple of weeks, Aaron. So the question, and we'll start with the latter. I want to know in the event that the potential interviewer witnessed microaggressions, how would they respond to the aggressor and what are they going to do? Because we have no room for this in our field and I have no tolerance for this in our field. And we have to do better. So I want to hear from the potential person that's interviewing that they will lean in and make a change because because we need it. And so that's a hard question to be asked. But Mm -hmm. I have also heard from some colleagues that they were asked questions in that vein during their recent interview process. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's a hard one. Also, I want to know that the person that I am interviewing knows the difference in their CPT codes and CPT codes state to state and how to bill. Because if you can't tell me what you're billing for and that it matches the ASHA super bill, then I have a problem because you could be committing insurance fraud, unethical billing practices, and potentially shut down a private practice because of that lack of experience and exposure. So folks, if you want to go and treat, please review the ASHA super bill to ensure that you are familiar with the appropriate CPT codes. Mm -hmm. So box done. Well, because I think we go into the field hearing these stories and being like, that's not going to happen to me. Those things don't really happen. People don't commit ethics violations, but it happens all the time. And when you work in home, you see it all the time from other people and it's out there and it's important to know our scope of practice and know our code of ethics And say something when you see something, because that's all you can do. Yes, Michelle and I are a bit of some ethics police, as you may call us, but we have no choice because when you know, you know, if you don't know, then hopefully you learn. But once you know better, do better. Mm -hmm. And If you're the person that knows that something is unethical or wrong, it is your job to speak up about it, 
to whoever, to your supervisor, to someone above you, or you just need to say something. And it's, I think Michelle and I especially want people on our team who we trust Mm -hmm. will say something or tell us or tell their supervisor or whoever it is because. Or ask the question. Or ask the question. It may not be telling. It may simply be asking the question. If you see something and you need clarification, it may be, I witnessed this. Please, as my daddy would say, seek to understand. I witnessed this. Help me understand what I saw and what is the right response and ethical response or ethical code to use for this. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and like you said, going off of that, you want to, in your interview, be honest in that you may not know all of, I don't have our code of ethics memorized. I know a lot of them just because I've had to go back and look for things, but I know enough to, when I'm questioning something, go look or ask. So I want to know that the person that I'm interviewing would ask similar to our, your clinical questions, your ethical questions, knowing that someone will question and that someone will think critically and not just say, oh, I thought this might've not been okay, but I didn't really want to ask about it because I didn't want to open up a can of worms, which sometimes you open up a can of worms, but Michelle and I don't want to go on a soapbox about this. This is about interviews, but if everyone just sits by and doesn't say anything, then nothing's going to change. So if you're just going to sit there and, you know, well, everyone else is doing it this way. Well, that's a problem. And you need to say something about it because if no one else does, then nothing's ever going to change. And it's just a problem. It's a big responsibility, but then ask someone else and ask someone above you and take that responsibility off of you and let them make the decision. But at least you're going to ask about it. And that's what they really want to know in the interview is that you care about ethics. You care about your scope. You care about what you do. You hold your license to a high level. You want someone that practices at the top of their license. And if you don't care about ethics and you don't care about your scope and you're not going to say anything, then you don't, I believe you're not valuing your license as much as you should. Yes. Perfect ethics question to summarize this. Okay. Here's the case scenario. You have a patient that you've been working with in home health for several months. Patients making tremendous progress, just started feeding tube weaning because of the increase in oral volume. Patient informs you that they're moving across state lines just for three months because they want to go on an extended family vacation and they're all homeschooling. Totally fine. Don't worry, we're going to keep a physical address down the street at a friend's house. Can you still participate via teletherapy? This was posed to me Monday morning. Okay. Not unless the you answer- have the license in their state. Yes. Yes. And but also, if you don't know, mm-hmm. email your state licensing board and ask them. Yes. Hopefully they'll have a right answer. Sometimes they, it's blurry and they're like, read this. It tells you and you're like, this didn't exactly tell me what the answer is, but, but there it is. Yes. Okay. So another ethics question that was posed to me a very long time ago was, well, you know, we are looking for somebody who can supervise three SLPAs and you really don't need to be there in person. You can just participate in the therapy sessions via teletherapy. How do you feel about that? So my response was no. One, just because I didn't want to do supervision because I just had goose and that was in and of itself 
too much. But here's the follow-up, guys. Every state has a different requirement or max on how many SLPAs a supervisor can supervise. Mm-hmm. Or and CFs. Or CFs that they can supervise or SLPAs and CFs simultaneously. So you have to know the answer to that. Also, it is even embedded within our state licensure that you cannot supervise that seventh session via Zoom or Skype or whatever. You have to do that face-to-face. So you got to know that and you have to say, okay, well, you can ask them, what does our licensure say for the state of Vermont? Sorry, I don't actually know anybody in Vermont. So that's why I picked that state. I'm like, what is the licensure for Vermont? I would have to check and see how many I could supervise. And I would have to find out what the manner and frequency of supervision visits are. And those are ethical questions that you can ask back and trust but verify. So if they tell you that this is okay, y'all, that's your license. And sometimes the managers of a company, they're not licensed SLPs. Often they're OTs, PTs, or they might actually just be businessmen or women or thems, but business individuals. And if that's the case, then you definitely want to verify because do they truly understand the gravity of potential licensure Mm -hmm. implications? And so many of these things that we're getting asked to do are because a company is... It's because we are like, in anything, it is a business to some extent. I mean, to it is a business, not to some extent. But if we keep as a profession allowing these protocols and what's within our scope, what's within our code of ethics to be lax, we are continuing to accept things that we don't deserve and continuing to not be given what we're worth, which I think is a big problem in our field, just in general, because I think being in a field full of women, a lot of times we don't advocate for ourselves in the same way. I'm not saying go into an interview and ask for a hundred thousand dollars as a CF, but what I'm saying is these protocols are set in our set to protect us and to help us not do more and more and more and more and more while we're not getting paid any more and more and more and more and we're being devalued. So a lot of these things also are to give you a backbone to say, no, I will not supervise four SLPAs. There's just so many factors too. Like these ethics weren't created because people just felt like making rules. Like I like rules that are based in reason. Sometimes I break rules, but not code of ethics. The rule, I think, not code of ethics ones. Yeah, I think it's important to just know your worth as well and know that these give you a backbone and give you something to stand on. Yes, no, those those are those are perfect. I've seen you play cards. I've seen you and Goose play cards. I'm not sure who cheats more playing cards. You or Goose? <laughs> to cheat with a, a child. <laughs> it's like watching Goose play chess. If I mean, he it's... cheats, I have to cheat. There's no rules anymore. <laughs> Uh, I just just honey in love. That's all. Okay. So here's the deal. If you don't know the question that is posed to you, even if it has ethical connotations, then it is absolutely warranted for you to say, I would have to research that and get back to you. 
And just so you know, you can always contact ASHA. They have phone supports and you can reach out to your state license board and they can give you feedback as well, whether or not something was appropriate. Or if they feel that you need to report, they'll tell you, we encourage you strongly to report. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So I'm checking our, oh, describe three potential pitfalls with pragmatics during the interview and how to mitigate them. All right. Let me backstory this. One. Oh, we both have stories for this. Yes. Yes. One, pragmatics and demonstrating social skills is part of what we assess and treat within our scope of practice. So I always find it, I don't know if humbling or ironic is the right word to go with, but it's one of those words or maybe both when you're come across an individual who assesses and treats this, but yet they themselves are demonstrating shortcomings in that topic matter. It's just a bit of both. Mm -hmm. So when you are interviewing, I can tell you, One that I did in particular that to this day leaves me awake at night, two o'clock in the morning when I'm thinking about that and also the appropriate amount of detergent to put into a dishwasher, but that's a squirrel for a conversation that's upcoming with Sujeta. Or you um, can just buy a pod. Yeah. Sometimes you run out though, but yes. Okay. So I went on an interview and this is where it's important to know societal, cultural norms within the area that you're interviewing. I am not from South Carolina. I'm from Virginia. So it's not the South South. And when I went on an interview here, I was shaking everybody's hands as I came in. And there was only a couple of people when I came in and a couple of people were introduced a little later and I shook everyone's hands. And then we walked into yet another, a third room. And in the third room, only like a couple more people came in we all sat down around the table and I had just shaken hands with like everybody in the room out the door. So when the new people came in, I didn't shake hands with the people that I shook hands with in the middle room, shook hands in room one, shook hands in room two, new people come in the room for room three. I didn't go back and reshake room one and two's hands that just happened to be in there because yo, that's a lot like of, it seemed very yeah. redundant. So when we were going through those people, I was just like, good to see you. Yes, yes. And then the new people, I shook their hands. I did not realize that in Michelle land, that pragmatic, I just acknowledged you 45 seconds ago, was perceived as a shortcoming in that new setting because the other individuals were not privy to me having been introduced in the hall two doors down. (sighs) I think I didn't get the job, which ended up being the greatest blessing because I just didn't know how the appropriate timing with which to shake an individual's hand. So learn, as I say, also COVID. So maybe hygienic fist bump or like, or like elbow bump. Everyone's doing this right now. Yeah. All all the things just, I don't want to touch people right now, except for hugs, but like, that's a whole different thing. So yes. All right. Erin, your insight here, ma'am. Oh, Well, I would say this kind of goes off of my like mutual of an interview, but I interviewed somewhere and it was a very, very intense interview process. Like six or seven people are on the table, eight clinical questions, very intense, like was prepped before, like, yeah, you know, this is a a really tough 
position, a lot, you know, there are a good amount of people that just like can't really make it through the program. Red flag. Why do you have so many issues keeping people? But as a new grad, I was like, oh, no, no, I'm committed. I'm committed. This is, I'm going to, no, I'm going to prove them wrong. That also is setting you up to be gaslighted later on. That's prepping for it to be your fault if things don't work out. And I interviewed and, and I'm someone that even when I'm interviewing people or when I first meet people, it's like the first time I meet you, I'm quieter. I'm more reserved because I'm, my brain is literally going 500 miles an hour as I observe every single person, what they're doing, how they're responding, what I need to do. It's exhausting, but this is me. But then the second time you meet me, I will be outgoing, much more open. Like I'm just reading the situation. And they called Michelle as a reference after the interview and proceeded to tell her that I came across as aloof, which was very, very hard for me to hear. And she started laughing just like that. But it was one of those things where, yes, maybe could I have gone in and been much more like bubbly and I don't even know how I could have done it, but also that wasn't me. So it's important to, in those interviews, be on your best behavior, be kind, be open, but also be yourself because somebody interpreting that differently for me is okay. It just maybe wasn't a match or, you know, in interviewing more people now, like there are people that come in with a personality that's like, I'm here, I'm ready. Let's go. I read about you. I know who works here. I know what you're doing. And there's people that come in that are much more relaxed where I work. We like all of those people because we realize that there's a lot of benefit to having different personalities and people that bring different things into an environment because you can serve different kids. If a place is looking for a model of the same person and you're not that model, then it's probably not the right place. But I do think maybe I could have been a little more open and not eager, but there were some things I probably could have done because I was so nervous. And the reason I was so nervous is because I wanted them to like me so much. So going in, and I probably wouldn't have been interpreted that way as much if I had gone in and just been myself and not felt like I have to get them to like me. I have to get them to like me, just gone in and answered the questions and been me. And that's really hard advice to take, especially when you're new, because you really want to prove that you deserve this job and that you, you know, you build these interviews up because you're so excited to get an interview and I need to do this and I'm going to mess it up and I don't want to mess it up. But going in with that perspective of I'm ready, I got this interview. They got me here. I'm going to look them in the eyes. I'm going to answer questions and be confident about it and use those pragmatic skills I would use with anybody else and not question it. And that, that can help because I was misinterpreted because I was so nervous. So also I completely forgotten about that interview and somebody called I will me. never forget about that. Oh, oh my gosh. Cause I was like, you clearly don't know our Erin. I have eye contact problems and I don't know if problems is the correct word, but me personally, when I'm thinking, I can't make eye contact mm-hmm. with people when I'm thinking because I'm a, you'll read their emotions also. 
Yes. Well, yeah, this, this I do this very, yeah, you pegged that I do pick up on the other person's emotions, but I'm a visual thinker. So I'm pulling together basically like a Mm -hmm. schematic in my head. And so if I'm looking at the person, then I can't think clearly. So, however, in some cultures, it is inappropriate to break eye contact. Now, if I'm going to demonstrate cultural respect, then I need to also, on the other side of that, recognize that when I'm having a conversation with an individual with a different background, they may have been raised to, and it might be valued in their societal norms to have a softer tone of voice, to not make eye contact. Greetings, handshaking, hugging, oh, that might not be the way you were brought up and placing Mm -hmm. your biases on those pragmatic social skills, we do have to recognize those variations. And it's just it. It's variations. It's not deficits. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. not a disorder. It's a difference. But that's what makes up the fabric of our society. And it's beautiful. So um, also, I have had to code switch when I'm working with some families and or to make more direct eye contact or to lower my tone. And so I would anticipate, especially if you are applying for a position in a very diverse region, that a question on that could come up. In home health, I have had to learn that in some homes, I would have to take my shoes off at the front door, outside, I would have to put Mm -hmm. little booties on my shoes and all to be respectful. And that's okay. So it would be appropriate if you were interviewing in a very diverse population for an individual to say, okay, we work with families from this cultural background. How would you engage with them? And it would tie into your pragmatic skills. Also, while we're on this, yeah, we only have 10 minutes left. So I'm looking at everybody that's over here. Does anybody have any questions? questions or something specific that you are hoping to get out of tonight's time that we have yet to cover. We can give them a second. But like you said, ask, like when I go into a family's house, I say, would you like me to keep my shoes on or take them off Yes. to give them, you know, like preemptively kind of prepare. And if you are someone that, you know, looks away when you're thinking what I would probably say in an interview is I'm really trying to be thoughtful with my response. It's because I'm trying to gather that information and that's how I process. It's also about knowing yourself and knowing these things that you do pragmatically so that you can then preemptively communicate that. I mean, we are communication specialists. That's what we study and that's what we teach. And so part of the interview is learning, how does this person communicate with us? How does this person navigate these scenarios? Being authentic to yourself, but also observing the nonverbal interview, I wouldn't say behavior match like mockingly, but sometimes a little bit of behavior matching can be very beneficial because it shows that you're... mm -hmm. And so... I mean, I just took a course where they talk so much. I took a trial course and they talk a lot about that behavior matching and how if someone doesn't say it can be very, very beneficial, but you have to be very tactile. I'm not saying go and play copycat with someone in an interview, but like, if you notice that they cross their 
cross your legs. Just think, like there's things that, and we do it typically. I mean, we do it when we like someone psychologically, we start to use their mannerisms and we start to match that. But it's really important to know yourself when you go into an interview so you can communicate that and you can be prepared. Oh, when, when this happens, I tend to get quiet or do this, like, don't change that, but maybe be aware of that. So you can say, okay, maybe I need to speak a little bit louder. Maybe I need to ask those questions. Do practice interviews. I mean, I think role play can be really helpful. Even as weird as it sounds at first, like I'll role play with people that I'm mentoring as like a parent, if they're nervous about a conversation that they're going to have with a parent or what to say or how to respond. So that can also be really helpful. I have the students role play how to speak to a physician. Like we practice writing the script out and that's cute. So, and it's appropriate. And this is the part of the interviews that I struggle with to ask the questions of the people that you want the prospective position with. I interview them also. Yeah. I have tells. I have tells. I touch my face when I'm thinking, when I'm nervous. Yes. Yes. When, yes. <laughs> Do you know how many little kids I'm like, Hmm. And then I can tell like, they've really picked up on that when I'm like, so what do you want to eat today? And they're like, Hmm. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Over-exaggerated cartoon shell showed up. Yay. <laughs> but I am aware of my tells so that I can compensate for them to some extent. Mm-hmm doing an interview. Yes. I talk with my hands. I am, um, and love talking with my hands, but my nervous ones. And I have a really bad essential tremor in my right hand that has been exacerbated by damage to my shoulder. Thanks to a violent first marriage. And so when my blood sugars get low, my hand tremor is really bad. And that has negative connotations to a hand mm-hmm. tremor. So I know how to compensate for that because if I get really excited or really nervous and I go to stick out my hand, my whole hand is tremoring. I'll just say, excuse my tremor, or I'm just really excited. And Mm -hmm. I know how to, how to roll with that. Mm -hmm. So having that flexibility. Cola Kitty, what is your favorite interview question? She just wants to know if there's um, cat notes. But even like, you know, I'll write down questions before an interview or I did, I haven't interviewed in over a year, but if they answer your questions and you're like, oh crap, I don't have any questions to ask, say, you know, I really wanted to know about this. And you answered that. I really want to know about this. And you answered that because those questions are really important to the questions you ask show what you care about, because that's what you needed more information about or they already answered it. So, you know, I, I really want to know about continuing education. You told me you give this for continuing education. I really wanted to know about mentorship. You know, you answered that question. I really love that. I like the questions as a wrap up of like, these are the things that are really important to me. And these are the things that you answered. And I really value that. So thank you. And just as I would say to any of my students that are doing an evaluation for a a patient, you know, if you leave say, I, I may have more questions. I am someone that processes that, you know, say you you're overwhelmed and they ask you for questions and you're like, I, my brain is fried. 
I am someone that processes things and likes to sit down, I will likely have questions after this. Would you be okay if I emailed you them? Because that shows that you care enough to not just throw a random question out there because they asked you for it. And that's okay if that's how you process things. So it's so much more than the exact answer. It's how you say it. It's if you're authentic, it's if you're kind, it's you showing that you care. You can teach clinical skills. I mean, that's something that you can learn. That's something they hope that you have a lot of, but that's not really what they're looking for in the interview. What they're looking for in the interview is that you're teachable and you're kind and you're willing to grow and you care about them and you care about your patients. And that's what's most important. If you answer, you know, if you don't know the answer to a clinical question, that's okay. They can help mold that, but it's more mostly about your personality and if you're a good fit in your therapeutic presence that we don't talk about a lot as speech pathologists. Yes. I had a PT director and he had me read the book, If Disney Ran Your Hospital. Have you ever read that? No, I'm surprised you haven't told me about that one. Oh, yes. My uncle works for Disney, so... You should ask him if he's read that book because I got to tell you what, when I got done with the book, I was like, how come Disney doesn't actually have a hospital? <laughs> but like, yeah, they could. We just may not know about it. But it was if Disney ran your hospital and the takeaway was when you leave and you leave that patient and you leave the caregivers, they're going to remember how you made them feel more than anything else. And at the, the conclusion of the interview... It's your therapeutic presence and how did you make those people feel? And so that was my, my big takeaway, but we are right on the button for nine and I don't see any questions. So folks, I hope that this was helpful this evening. As always, we love it when you follow us on First Bite at First Bite Podcast on Instagram, on Facebook. We love it when you give us a review on Apple Podcast. In case you haven't heard it yet, uh, Chasing the Swallow is out and available on Amazon. And it's also available for 13 and a half continuing education hours through speechtherapypd.com, which also brought us fabulous folks here this evening. Ooh, and apparently we have a two-hour course on therapeutic presence coming Wednesday, September 1st. Ooh, I who's doing that? Oh. I want to go that. <laughs> No, yes, but so that's we we have those lovely things coming up and a uh, heads up if pfd is your thing i can tell you the first week in august oh my that's next week we have the lovely dr georgia melandrecki on and i'm in awe but aaron well happy interviewing i'm hoping that the right person finds their way to you well i mean <laughs> Listen, if people, I mean, we need some good people. So anyway, now that you know all the things I look for, if you want to interview with me, (laughs) check out, feel free, come along. Uh, Oh my goodness. Awesome. sauce. Okay. Everybody go have a lovely evening and uh, thanks for being with us. Bye everyone. Feeding Matters guide system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? 
The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Feed your mind, feed your soul.